I recently had the privilege of going to see the hit musical Hamilton down in San Francisco. Written by Lynn manuel it is a dramatized version of Alexander Hamilton's life and death. The play is a whirlwind of themes ranging from courage to classism, racism, freedom, integrity, and I think most importantly, forgiveness. Throughout the play, we see how forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness will change the direction and lives of Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, his son Philip, and his wife Eliza. In particular, reading a book written by Manuel about the creation and production of the play, he talks about trying to write the relationship between Alexander Hamilton and his wife Eliza. Because history shows us that Alexander Hamilton, in an attempt to protect his professional reputation, wrote and published something called the Reynolds Pamphlet. It was a letter detailing his multiple-year-long affair with another woman. It shamed and came at the expense of his wife and his son. And in the dramatics of the play, after the letter is distributed and Eliza has read it, she gets to have her voice and sing her song, which Manuel entitled Burn. And she sings out rage and anger and heartbreak as she burns the letters that he had written to her, telling, her that, telling him that he will never again enjoy her love or her life. The end of her song, she tells him, I hope you burn. And right after this, we see Hamilton's son getting into a duel to try to defend his father's honor, where he dies. Emmanuel writes, when people were reading the script, they laughed because they told him he backed himself into a corner. How could he ever write something that was even slightly believable? about how Eliza was able to forgive Hamilton for the mess that he had made of their lives and move on. Because as humans, the truth is that we believe that forgiveness has a limit. That there are some things that simply cannot be forgiven. Our scripture today has Peter asking Jesus a question. How many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? Now, Peter thought he was being exceedingly generous. Because the tradition at that point in the Jewish community stemmed from a line in the book of Amos where God tells people, three times I will forgive you, but not the fourth. And so common practice was to forgive someone three times. And here's Peter, not just three times, but seven times. He's more than doubling the amount of forgiveness he expects to be rewarded for his generosity. But instead of being impressed, Jesus tells Peter, no, not seven times. Seventy-seven times, or maybe even better yet understood as 70 times seven times. Or really what he's trying to convey is, an infinite amount of times. Jesus tells Peter that there is no limit to forgiveness in the kingdom of God. Now, a quick aside, 
And this is why when we read our Bible, we read all of it. Because in these few lines, we're not going to see any conditions placed. We're not going to see any requirements for forgiveness. And that is wonderful. But these lines have been used at points in people's lives to push them back into situations that are dangerous and unhealthy. If we read the passage right before this, we will see that there is a difference in the Bible between forgiveness and reconciliation. There are no limits on forgiveness. But that does not mean that you need to return yourself to a situation in which you are being hurt or harmed. Jesus does not tell us to return to abusers who are going to damage us. After telling Peter that forgiveness has no limit, Jesus tells a story. And Jesus is an incredible storyteller. He tells one of a king who calls a servant to account. Now, this servant owes the king an astronomical amount of money. Talents, denarii, they don't make a lot of sense in our current monetary system. But if you were to imagine, imagine a billion dollars. That that's the equivalent. It is more than he could ever, ever have spent. It's not the debt of a person. It's the debt of an entire country. And it's meant to be absurd and hyperbole because it's meant to remind us that the debt that we owe could never be repaid. No matter how good we are, no matter how hard we work, no matter how long we have, we could not repay the debt just like the servant could not repay his debt to the king. And the servant recognizing the vastness of his debt and the consequences that come along with that he falls to his knees and he begs the king for a little more time. Have patience. I will try to pay it off. Seeing the man's sorrow, seeing his desire to make it right, the king doesn't just grant him time. He grants him full forgiveness. He wipes out the man's debt. Now, Having received such extravagant grace, we would assume that this servant would be so excited. That he would be bursting at the seams to tell people of the goodness of the king. That he would be going and willing to share the generosity that he'd experienced. And yet, we're shocked when we find out that the first thing he does upon leaving the king is to go find another fellow servant to grab him by the throat, to shake him and demand repayment, not for a billion dollars, but for a thousand. And when his fellow servant and friend uses the same language that he just used to ask for mercy, he doesn't grant it. It's like in the book of James when he says, it's like a person who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets his own face. So he has his fellow servant thrown in jail. And the community saw this and they were distressed and they were saddened. And they went to tell the king what they had seen because the community, the community has a responsibility to speak up when it sees injustice. And upon hearing that this king is 
Upon hearing this, the king is angered. And he calls a servant back in front of him. And he reminds him of the grace he's just been given. And he points out that he failed to extend that same grace. And now the results are worse than when he had started. He is sent off to be tortured until the debt can be paid. Jesus reminds us that this is how God will treat us if we do not forgive our brothers and sisters. And this is the biblical mandate that we find over and over again, that somehow our forgiveness is intrinsically tied to how we forgive other people. We pray this every time we recite the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But why? Why is this such an important part of our faith life, of being human? In our current culture, forgiveness is often seen as weak. We glorify revenge and vengeance. We call people fools for forgiving those who hurt them or take advantage. Our entire justice system is based around the ideas of vengeance, retribution, and revenge being necessary to a person healing from a loss or an insult or an injury. Think of how much quicker any of our favorite action movies from the past 10 years would end if instead of seeking vengeance, the protagonist simply offered forgiveness to the person who had hurt them. There's been a movement in recent years in the scientific community to study the physical and psychological impacts of forgiveness on people who had it as a practice. They have found researchers in studies across the board that those who have a practice of forgiveness have lower blood pressure, lower anxiety, lower levels of depression, lower levels of cortisol, better working relationships, better marriages, better interpersonal relationships, lower risk of heart attack, less fear. The benefits of forgiveness seem to be unending. But make no mistake that forgiveness is a practice. It's not easy. It requires far more of us than staying angry ever will. It's not the weak who forgive. It's the strong. Those who are strong enough to free themselves from bondage of anger and pain. A study following those who had loved ones who were murdered found out that for those families for whom the perpetrator was put to death, they were significantly less likely to say that they felt satisfied or had had any actual closure. Because vengeance never brings about the sense of closure that we had hoped it would. In fact, it just pushes us further from it. When we refuse to forgive someone, metaphorically, we tie them up and we toss them in a pit. And we torture them every day. We constantly draw them out and we submit them to a trial again and again in our minds. Until we deem that their debt has been paid and at first, it feels good. It feels like we've reestablished some control, like we're getting the justice that we have been denied. We do it over and over and over again. And what we fail to realize in the bright light of day is that 
The only person in that pit is us. It has been repeated many times and attributed to many different people, but there is truth in the statement that holding on to anger is like taking poison and waiting for someone else to die. We do deep damage to ourselves. We effectively trap ourselves in a cycle of anger and pain and loss when we refuse to forgive. Because they couldn't forgive, Hamilton would die. Burr would see his life and legacy destroyed. 30 years of grudges would end the life of three people. There is no strength to be found in allowing outside circumstances and other people to take over your mind and your life. And if we know that forgiving is such a vital part of our faith, it's such a vital part of taking care of ourselves, then why is it so hard? Why do so many of us struggle to practice forgiveness in our day-to-day lives? And I think part of what makes it so hard is that in order to forgive, we have to be willing to let go. To let go of our identity, to let go of how we think the world should be, to let go of control. When the king pardons the servant, the debt is costly. He is giving up a fortune. He is giving up what he is due in the eyes of the world. He's risking others' opinions of him and his perceived strength. (coughs) C.S. Lewis in his book Screwtape Letters says, even Pilate was merciful until it was risky. Many of us are willing to forgive until it becomes risky. And when we forgive another person, we surrender. (coughs) (coughs) The identity of the injured party. (coughs) It's hard to stop thinking of ourselves as a victim. To stop craving that perceived sympathy, that sense of being right that comes from being the injured party. Because when we truly forgive, we have to stop convicting that person every day in our own heads. The king can no longer complain about his lost income, can no longer tell everyone about that guy who took advantage of his generosity. No, he has to find his identity now in a new place. And for some of us, The only identity we know is the one that we have built up in our own head as an injured party. (coughs) We have built our lives around the actions of others. And we have let who we become be defined not by who God declares us to be, but who we let others make us. We stay their prisoners even though we find ourselves thinking we're the jailer. In 1944, Eva Kor was a 10-year-old girl in Germany when she was taken by the Nazis to Auschwitz. She had a twin sister, parents, and three other siblings. Now, the Nazis had a fascination with twins. They wanted to study them to figure out how it worked so that they could have more twins and make more German babies quicker. So Eva and her sister were taken from the rest of her family 
and they were put into a secret experiment by Dr. Joseph Mengel. Nickname was the Angel of Death. And for nine months before they were liberated, Eva and her sister were subjected to horrendous experiments and torture. The horror and tragedy of her time, the death of the rest of her family, it goes beyond what we think is forgivable in this world. But in 1995, Eva had the chance to meet up with a Nazi doctor who was at Auschwitz during the same time that she was. They spent time and he told her about his responsibility signing death certificates in the gas chambers. He knew nothing about the top secret twin program, but when Eva asked him about how, how he could live with himself, he said, this is the nightmare that I experience every day of my life. And so Eva asked him to go with her to Auschwitz to talk about what had happened, to tell the truth about what had occurred. And after she returned home to Indiana, she said she spent 10 months trying to figure out what gift you get a Nazi doctor. She said she spent days in the Hallmark aisles looking for the right kind of card. How do you thank a Nazi? I don't know, Cor said. But then it popped into her head, I will write him a letter of forgiveness. She wrote, I discovered I had one power left in life. I could forgive the Nazis for what they did to me, she said in an interview. It took her four months to write that letter. It also prompted her, she said, to play act that she was in the room <coughs> with Mengel. He had died in 1979, and <coughs> she said she looked up every bad word she could find in the dictionary to describe him. And then she forgave him as well. I felt such freedom, she said. I was no longer a tragic prisoner. I was free of Auschwitz and I was free of Mengel. I forgiveness is the seed of peace. She freely admits that for five decades of her life she was bitter. If I had discovered forgiveness sooner, I would have had that 50 years of my life, she said. Forgive. See the miracle that can happen. Forgiveness is one of the most missed miracles that we have in our world. Most of us walk through life with a set of unspoken rules and assumptions about how things are supposed to be. And when life doesn't follow these rules, we try to control the situation to force it back on track. <coughs> we hold grudges. We try to remake the world in our own way, to grab back some of the control that was taken from us. By punishing his fellow servant, the forgiven servant was declaring that there's an unspoken rule, we must be paid back what we're owed. And if he couldn't get it one way, he was going to get it another way until he was satisfied. In 1993, Mary Johnson had a 20-year-old son who was murdered. Murdered by a 16-year-old boy named O'Shea. And when she tells her story, she says, I believe hate set in then and there. Here was I, a Christian woman full of hatred. I was pleased he was going to be tried first degree as an adult. And I was angry 
when the judge suddenly changed the charge to second-degree murder. In court, I viewed O'Shea as an animal. The only thing that kept me going was being able to give my victim impact statement. I was inspired by my faith, so I ended by saying I'd forgiven O'Shea because, well, the Bible tells me to forgive, but I hadn't actually forgiven him. The root of bitterness ran deep, and anger had set in, and I hated everyone. I remained like this for years, driving people away. Mary had an unspoken rule about life, that our children should always be safe, that no harm should ever come to them. And when this was shattered in such a brutal fashion, she tried to regain control by getting angry and having someone punished. And while she understood forgiveness was part of her faith practice, she wasn't really ready to put it into her own practice yet. We do this all the time. We say we forgive someone, and yet we still allow them to control our actions and our attitudes. We want control, and we end up giving it away. Years later, Mary put in a request to meet with O'Shea in prison. She sat down with him, and the first time they met, they talked for two hours, getting to know one another. And by the time those two hours had passed, she stood up and she hugged him. She thought, I am hugging the man who killed my son. She said, then as I got up, I felt something rising from the soles of my feet and leaving me. And from that day on, I have not felt any hatred, animosity, or anger. It was over. And it wasn't easy, but the process had begun because in 2010, when O'Shea was released from prison, Mary threw him a party. And she welcomed him back to the community, and he moved next door. And she calls him her spiritual son. And he calls her mom. That is the miracle of forgiveness. That a child was lost but a new son was returned. O'Shea said, I have learned in my life that if you hold on to pain, it grows and it grows. If you forgive, you start to starve that pain and it dies. Forgiveness is pretty much saying, I give up on holding on to the pain. The king grants us unimaginable grace. But the expectation is then that we will extend that grace to other people. Not just for the other person, but for ourselves. Because one who forgives is one who is strong. It is a person that's experienced the miracle of peace. To forgive is another extension of the grace given to us by the king. Because it allows us, you and I, normal, everyday humans, to enter into the world of grace and miracles. Eliza doesn't show up on stage for a while in Hamilton. But when she finally does, they've said goodbye to their son. And as the song opens, we hear the refrain, there are moments that the words don't reach. 
There's suffering too terrible to name. And we see Eliza and Hamilton each standing far off from each other as the song progresses, and they're moving closer and closer to one another. Manuel said that he realized sometimes there are no words. And as they step closer together, we hear that refrain one more time. Sometimes there are places that the word don't, words don't reach. But this time it's followed by, because there's a grace too powerful to name. And we see the actors on stage reach over and they grab each other's hands. And we hear the music lift. And we hear the words forgiveness ring out. Can you imagine forgiveness? At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last book, there is a theme that C.S. Lewis speaks of. And all of the characters throughout the book constantly talk about moving further up and further in. When we forgive every time we take the risk of letting go of what we know and stepping into a place of the unknown where grace abounds, we move further up and we move further in to the kingdom of God where we are freed from the prisons that we've built for ourselves on earth and we can live into the freedom of forgiveness that we have been granted. When we come to this table, when we come to this place, 